And now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, continuing our study in the book of Samuel. Please pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for Yahweh is with you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we again thank you for your word and we ask you to uh, make it fruitful in our lives and to work it into us, knead it into our hearts so that we can meditate on it and marinate in it all week, that this day would not be our only exposure to your word, but that we would be continually seeking your face through the revelation that you have given us in this book. So Father, now guide us in our study, guide us by your Holy Spirit, give us insight and wisdom and clarity, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, those of you who are adults, when did it hit you that you were finally an adult? Did, did, did you ever feel like one day you woke up and you said, wow, I'm a grown-up? Or maybe that hasn't happened yet for some of you. I know it can take longer for some of us than, than others. But, but when did you kind of come into your own? You feel that you're finally independent with a, with a grown-up job and fully responsible for yourself. S sometimes that realization comes far after the reality. You are actually an adult for a while before you before you realize it. But in your mind, you're still young and you're insecure and you're unsure about yourself and you're lacking confidence. Uh, and, then, and then one day the light bulb turns on and suddenly you're, you're there. Wow, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a grown up. As silly as it sounds, uh, really, for me, at least one of the first times that, that light came on was the very first time I paid cash for four of the same kinds of tire for a vehicle that needed tires. I, that's a small thing. It doesn't sound like a big deal. But for me, you know, walking into a tire store, yeah, I need four tires. And I'm going to put them all on at the same time. And I'm going to pay cash for them. I'm not going to put them on a credit card. I'm going I'm to pay for this. Uh, because when you're struggling through college and the early years of your life, any kind of car expense is a big crisis. And so you go for the least expensive route that you can to get back on the road. And for so many years, I was just, I was getting one flat after another. And my vehicles were these kind of rolling tire catalogs. I had a Goodyear and a Continental and a Michelin and a, and a Kelly, you know, what do you, what do you like? I got all of them here. And, and so the first time I needed the tires and could pay cash for all four, that, that was a huge, that was a huge moment for me. I felt like a big boy, you know, at that point, you know, I felt like I was grown up. Another, another clarifying moment for me was when we bought our very first house and spending that first Christmas in that house. A after so many years of apartment dwelling and living in rent houses, I, I remember with, with clarity that moment with Sarah baking in the kitchen and I had a little boy and a little girl playing in the living room floor and we lit the, tire, uh, lit, lit the fire. I've got tires on my mind. We lit the, lit the fire. I'm still thinking about tires. We lit the fire in the fireplace and we had good music on the radio. You put your feet up and you say, okay, God is so good. God has given us everything that we need. God has established my house. I have good work and he has met or exceeded all of my needs. We are so blessed and we're so secure in him. And that felt, that felt so solid and so real and so finally secure as, as a, a mature 
father and a husband in, in the house that God had given me. Well, that's something, and I know you've all kind of experienced something like that at some sometime along the way. And that's the, uh, that's the position that David is in at the open of chapter 7 of Second of Samuel. David is dwelling in his house. He can put his feet up. He can light a fire and he can rest because Yahweh has given him rest from all of his enemies all around. And the phrase that is used there that uh, the king was dwelling in his house and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies all around. That's the fulfillment of a promise that comes way back in Deuteronomy chapter 12. The very same phrase, the very same language, the same words are, are used back there. All the way back in Deuteronomy 12, uh, here's what God says. When you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety, then there will be the place where Yahweh your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to Yahweh. There's a promise there that one day when you go and you conquer the land that you're going to put your feet up, you're going to light a fire, and you're going to rest. And God is going to give you rest from all of your enemies all around you. And when you get to that point, it's time for me to dwell with you. It's time for me to have a place where you can worship me and you can bring me your offerings. So that promise, by all accounts, at the beginning of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, that promise seems to be fulfilled, especially since the last Canaanite has just been dealt with. The last Canaanite tribe, the Jebusites, who were living in Jerusalem, they've been dispatched. The power of the Philistines has been broken. David knows the Bible, and this sparks him to say, okay, now Nathan, the prophet, how can I dwell in a fine paneled house? And that, that, that word there in some of your translations would be a cedar house. How can I be in a cedar house, a permanent structure? But the ark of the Lord is dwelling in tent curtains. How, how can this be? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. Later on, the book of Haggai, the little prophetic book of Haggai, the very same question is asked. Um, this, this is after the Babylonian captivity where Solomon's temple has been destroyed. Seventy years later, it, the, the children of Israel come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. They get started, but they get discouraged and they don't finish the construction. And then the prophet Haggai comes along and he says, How long will you dwell in paneled houses while the house of the Lord lies in ruins? That's a valid question. David has a good question. Haggai asks a very good question. You don't want your place of worship to look worse than where you live. You want to take better care of the house dedicated to the worship of God than you do your own. If you live in a mansion, you don't want to worship in a, in a dump, right? You don't want to worship in a, a filthy mobile home on the edge of town, you know, across the tracks. You want, you, you want your worship and your adoration and your honor of the Lord to be reflected in the place that you worship him and, and the place where you gather to meet him. Because it's easy to see where your heart is there, right? It's, it's easy to see what you value most. So, so if you put energy and effort into your own home, but your place of worship is an afterthought, something is out of sync. Something isn't right in how you value worship 
or the Lord. And David knows this and he sees this. So having brought the ark into Jerusalem, David wants to now give Yahweh rest. As, as David puts up his feet, it's time to give Yahweh rest and build a permanent house for the Lord. It makes sense. Whenever the Lord defeats his enemies, he builds a house with the spoils that he's taken from the enemies. He builds a house. There's a sanctuary for him to rest in, and he lights a fire. He lights a fire on the altar. This is what he did after the conquest of Egypt. He brought his people out of Egypt. They took the spoils with them. He made a house out of the spoils, and he lit the fire on the altar. In Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel talks about another great battle that's coming. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's this great battle. Of course, Ezekiel's telling us about uh, God's future purposes through Jesus. And what, what, is, what is the rest of Ezekiel about? Ezekiel 40 through 48 describe a new temple for the Lord to live in, to dwell in. And of course, when we get to Jesus, Jesus wins a victory on the cross. And then through the resurrection, he has this great bounty. He plunders Satan. He plunders the kingdom of darkness and he builds a new temple, the church. And does he light a fire? You better believe he does. He lights a fire on the heads of the people on the day of Pentecost. He lights a fire and he rests in his church and in his people. Well, and so David, David puts it together and he would expect now that the victory's won, it's time to build a house and light a fire. David mentions this to Nathan the prophet. We haven't met Nathan yet. This is the first time we see him. You know, he famously comes up later in confronting David about his sinful um, treatment of, you know, his murder of Uriah the Hittite and his dealing with Bathsheba. But this is the first time we meet Nathan. I believe that Samuel, I think there's good evidence to suggest that Samuel and Nathan and Gad worked to compose the two scrolls that make up first and second Samuel. So Samuel, of course, wrote until he passed away. And then Nathan picks up here, Nathan. And then later we have a prophet Gad toward the end who writes uh, the, the books of Samuel or the, the scrolls of Samuel. So Nathan also knows the promises of God. Nathan knows how God works. And so he's thinking the same thing that David's thinking. They're on the same wavelength. Uh, David says, I want to build a house for the Lord. And, and Nathan says, yeah, absolutely. Go do all that is in your heart for Yahweh is with you. It just makes sense to do this. But this isn't what the Lord wants at all right now. This is, this is not what he wants to happen. And the dialogue that follows between God and Nathan the prophet is maybe the most important chapter in both scrolls of first and second Samuel. This is the longest body of speech we get from the Lord since Mount Sinai. If you're reading through the Bible, uh, the Lord gives us little things here and there, but this is the longest section of the Lord's direct speech to a prophet since Sinai. And so what this suggests is that we're getting a major transition here in the history of Israel. Yahweh speaks at length and he clarifies and specifies the terms of the covenant that he's casting with David. God isn't canceling the Mosaic covenant, but he's building on it now so as to move Israel forward toward Jesus. We're, we're growing here. We're maturing. And so we get, we get more stuff here with David than we had before. Well, the last time the Lord spoke at any length in the book of Samuel, he was speaking to the young boy Samuel himself at night. And there he, the Lord was talking about the bringing down of the unfaithful house of Eli. Now God is going to speak once again to a prophet at night. But rather than talking about tearing down the house of Eli, he's going to talk about building up the house of David and establishing the house of David.
So now pay attention to the Lord's message to Nathan. We'll just read it straight through from verse 4 to verse 17 and hear what God says. David says, I want to build a house. And Nathan says, that's a great idea. And then later that night, the Lord speaks to Nathan. Verse 4, but it happened that night that the word of Yahweh came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, thus says Yahweh, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but I've moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I've been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, Yahweh tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. One theme, it's a minor theme, but it's a theme that runs through both of these scrolls of Samuel, both 1st and 2nd Samuel. A theme is all these faulty assumptions of the Lord's servants. There's, there are these, you know, uh, these prejudices that people hold, and then the Lord shows them, you're, you're not thinking clearly. You're not thinking right. Well, think back to Eli, when Eli assumes that Hannah is drunk when she's praying there at the tabernacle. He thinks, you know, she's just being an emotional woman, right? She's just being a ninny. She's acting strangely at the temple, and he can easily disregard her. Eli was wrong about that. And then there's Samuel looking out over all of Jesse's big corn-fed boys. And he thinks, surely it's one of these big boys that's going to be the man that I anoint king. And it's not. It's the littlest one. It's the runt of the family who's out tending the sheep that ends up being uh, anointed. And then there's David who's convinced that the only way to deal with Nabal the only way to, to, to face this guy is just to squash him and, and completely destroy all of his house. But David was wrong. The Lord had a better way to deal with Nabal. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's bring the ark back to Jerusalem the same way that the Philistines sent it to Beth Shemesh. Let's put it on a new cart. Nope, that's wrong. Let's not do that. And here again, David and Nathan think that they have a good and godly plan that will honor the Lord and the Lord doesn't want any part of it. He will not have it. Uh, this, how God's servants repeatedly have really good ideas that are really, really awful 
in the long run that God keeps correcting them and he keeps telling them, you're not thinking clearly. I th this is a helpful warning and, and it's instruction for all of us that sometimes our motives are just fine, but we aren't working with all the information. We can mean well, but at the same time lack wisdom. In, in this case, again, a human plan is corrected by divine revelation, which means that you and I need to pray for wisdom and cry out and ask the Lord to help us see beyond the way that seems right to our own eyes to what is actually good and well-pleasing to the Lord. In Proverbs 14, the Bible says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. <laughs> There's a way that can look really, really good, but be absolute horror and destruction. That's why I love, uh, you know, I often, um, Go back to Psalm 123, that, uh, that, that phrase there that um, if I don't read it, I will mess it up. I'll probably say something about tires if I don't read it <laughs> directly from here. As, as the eyes of a maid look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to Yahweh our God until he has mercy on us. That we look for the cues, we look for the subtle things that God is doing in the world and we understand his word and his world and we look for his, uh, his plan and his desire. Learn even the subtleties of the Lord's actions in history and the world. So understand that we never have all the information. We are not omniscient. We are not omnicompetent. We do the best with what we have, but we do it in humility, knowing that we have shortcomings. Well, that's one little thing that keeps coming up. And here again, David thinks it's the right thing to do, and it's, it's not. So the bigger question is, why doesn't the Lord want David to build him a temple yet? Seems like a good plan. The pattern seems to be that once you have victory over your enemies, God gives you rest. Will you build a more permanent structure? Well, the answer that we're given in Chronicles, remember Chronicles retells the story of David and uh, the story of the kingdom from the perspective of just the tribe of Judah. We get this story again in Chronicles and we, we get the answer there. Well, David was a man of war. David messed up. He didn't restrain um, his, his nephew um, who, who went crazy as we saw just a few weeks ago. And so because David... Uh, uh, was a man of war, he wasn't allowed to build the temple, just as Moses messed up and he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Well, that's the answer that we get in Chronicles, that Solomon is a man of peace, and so he'll build the physical temple. But there's a different reason given here in 2 Samuel 7. Um, to understand it, let's first consider what is a temple? What is a temple? Well, it's a, it's a house. It's a dwelling place for God. Of course, you can't contain the God of creation in a temple built with human hands. So it's not like, you know, God lives there and only there. Um, so in one sense, the true temple of God is heaven and earth. The whole cosmos is his temple. But in a more particular sense, the people of God are the temple of God. In both the tabernacle and in the temple, the architecture and the furniture of these structures symbolize God's people gathered around him. The, the table of the showbread, literally uh, showbread is face bread. And what was on the table of showbread or face bread? Well, these loaves, 12 loaves, one for each tribe of Israel. And they were there on the table as the the, 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 the lampstand shined light onto the table of, of face spread so that you have all 12 tribes of Israel there living constantly within the presence of God's illumination and his light. 
Uh, the furniture symbolizes the people of God. You've got the altar of incense, which is always, you know, lit and sending up this sweet smelling, uh, the, the, this fragrance, just as the prayers of the people keep going up before God. And he smells the fragrance, the, the fragrance of their worship and prayers. The walls of the tabernacle, as David says, the, the, the tabernacle is just curtains, right? The walls of the tabernacle are fabric. They're not brick or mortar, but the armed Levites guard the tabernacle. And then the tribes are camped in orderly fashion around the tabernacle. The people are the true walls around God's dwelling place. God's holiness dwells within walls made of people. The people are the stones. The people are the structure that God dwells in. So the true tabernacle is the people. The, the physical tabernacle is a representation of the true tabernacle. The structures always symbolize the people, but the true temple is Israel. And then specifically, not just all these people, but in particular, one person who is Jesus. Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. And he was speaking of himself. The son, the Messiah is the temple and the people who are called out to give the world the Messiah are the temple. So now what the Lord is teaching David is, what he's saying here is that the real temple that I am building is the people. The physical stone temple will come later. And that's just a representation of the true temple. The reason that God is saying no now to a stone temple is because he wants them to see that the real building project is them. They are the building project. They are the construction project that he has undertaken. That building themselves is his effort now. And of course, this is a theme. This is not uncommon for us. We speak like this all the time. And, and this theme comes over into the New Testament, right? Your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You all are the temple. It's a second person plural. Ye are the temple. Y'all are the temple. 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Peter 2. You all are living stones built up into a spiritual house. We know this. This is New Testament language to us. And that's why we always say, well... You know, the church ain't the building, the church is the people. And that's right. That's exactly right. We all know that. But what may be unfamiliar to us is that's not a New Testament innovation. That's not just something we get in Jesus. That was true all along. It's always been true. And David, David later responds to this, and he expresses this truth when he writes Psalms. Uh, the Psalms of Ascent are... Uh, psalms that you sing when you go up to Jerusalem for the feast days and to worship God. And some of the psalms of, of ascent were written by David, like Psalm 122, which describes going up to the house of God. Now, when David writes a psalm about going up to the house of God, the, the temple isn't built. Solomon hasn't built it yet. David wrote Psalm 27, where he says that I want to meditate in the Lord's temple all my days. Well, again, David's not talking about the temple of Solomon. In, in, in Psalm 65, David writes, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Now, maybe David is looking forward to Solomon's temple, though he's going to die before that's built. 
So all of these references to the temple and all of these references to the house of God in David's Psalms, he's not talking about Solomon's temple because it ain't built yet. And he's not talking about Moses' tabernacle because it's been taken apart. It's been taken down. Neither of them around. So what is he talking about? When David talks about dwelling in God's holy temple and the goodness and the joy and the peace that comes from being in God's holy temple, what's he talking about? He's talking about being among and in and with God's people. He's talking about the worship and the praise and the music and all of the you know, instrumental worship that's going on at the tent that, where the uh, ark is housed and the sacrifices that go on uh, at the tent where the altar is housed. But the people are the house. The people are the tabernacle. Now, with this in mind, we can see that God's not saying you know what, I'm really not interested in ever having a temple. I'm not, I don't want that. I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way things are. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, no, I want, I want to have a house one day, but uh, we're going to build you up first. We're going to establish you. The idea that God is going to build his own temple first is, is what he, he's saying here. But the, the most important part of the temple are the people and David's son, Jesus together with his people. And it's only after the people have been established that we're going to be concerned with putting up buildings. And that's still true today. You want to start a faithful congregation? You want to move somewhere and start, start a church? Well, what do you start with? Well, you start with putting Jesus in the middle. You put Christ in the middle. You have bread and wine. You have the word of God preached and the word of God sung. That's where you start. And once you get enough people around that, then you build a building. There is um, an importance to having a, a permanent place. This is, the, God is not uh, saying, oh, we don't ever need structures. We don't ever need buildings. That's not what this is all about. No, he's actually, he's saying, you know, once we get enough people around, once we get them established, then we'll build then we'll build the house because with that, there is permanence. With, with a building, with a home, there uh, shows God's dominion over the land. And today, church buildings, especially buildings that house faithful congregations, are representations of Christ's dominion over the land. And so for a church like I hope we are, a church that has a theology of permanence, a church that has a theology of dominion, we ought to have a solid permanent home that would demonstrate Christ's dominion over this, this community, this section of, of territory. And that's coming in, in history for, for David as well. It's just not yet. So, so God communicates all of these things to Nathan and then Nathan repeats it to David. And God is asking David, are you gonna build me a house? No, David's not going to do it. Who is? Who's going to build him a house? Well, only God can build himself a house. Solomon builds a physical house, but that's secondary. Basically, God is saying, only I can build my own house. And let me describe what my house is like. He says, from the day that I brought up the sons of Israel, I've been moving. And I've been moving with my sons. I've been moving with my children. The children of Israel are my human tabernacle. And wherever they go, I go with them in their midst. So the sign of his presence among them was that portable tent, the tabernacle that could be taken apart, moved and reassembled in another place. And God says, wherever I've gone with them, did I ever say, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? I've, I've never said that it was the right time for this. 
God reminds David then, he says, you know what, I took you from tending sheep so that you could begin working on building my house made of people. He says, now I've been with you wherever you've gone and cut off your enemies. I make you a great name. I'll build my human temple through you and establish my presence with you. How has God been with David this whole time? Remember that Abiathar, the high priest, left Saul very early and went and joined with David. So all this time, David has had the high priest with the ephod and the the Urim and the Thummim with him so that God's revelation and his presence was with David. God's voice was always near David. And now David also has a prophet. David has Nathan the prophet. He's got the priest. David's the king. He's got Nathan the prophet. You've got the priest, the king, and the prophet all right there. And God says, you're right. Now is the time to settle down and build a temple. And here's how we're going to do it. First, we're going to build the people. And then we're going to build the monumental architecture. I will appoint a place for my people and I will plant them and the wicked won't afflict them anymore. For the past 400 years, since coming into the land of Canaan, God's people have never been at peace or at rest. They've been driven from place to place to place. They've never conquered the land. And so they plant vineyards and they get their cattle and they get their house. And then uh, the Midianites or the Philistines would come and, and move them out. And so they would have to start over. They'd have to go live in caves. Uh, they, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth, as Hebrew said. But now that the last stronghold of the Canaanites has been taken with the conquest of Jerusalem, and now that the power of the Philistines has been broken, now that we have peace, God says, I'm going to make peace here for my people. I'm going to plant them. They're going to be fixed. They will live in their place and they will not be disturbed again. The people aren't going to wander around like they've been doing for these past 400 years. But they will be fixed in one place. And when they're fixed, then the temple will be fixed in one place. Uh, David knew that all of this points to Messiah. This all points to Jesus. Some part of this um, doesn't point to Jesus. Like, um, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. That's speaking of David's uh, physical son or his um, nearest son, Solomon, and, and Rehoboam and the others. Um, but the fulfillment of all of this is in Jesus. So this gives us the pattern. It gives us the outline. First, the son is enthroned as king. The people are gathered around him, and then the world is restructured. The world is rebuilt as the temple of God, just as it continues today. We praise Jesus, we gather around him, and then we redesign the physical structure of the world through our work and our worship and our obedience. And so the rest of David's reign and and on into Solomon's life, it shows how this new covenant is, is taking effect. Now for us today, Jesus is our temple. He is fixed in heaven. He is the true temple. So we are settled in him. We aren't wandering around aimless, but our life is fixed. Our home is fixed with him in heaven. Now David responds to all these wonderful things and responds to this promise with an overflow of praise and delight in God's plan. He, he follows when David prays his response to God, he follows an outline that we've seen other places and I've pointed it out. In fact, when we studied Ephesians back this past summer, Paul opens Ephesians with this very same outline of prayer. Paul starts out talking about God's creation and foreordination, and then he moves to God's redemption, 
And then Paul prays that God would fill up all of these things that he's promised. So, so he thanks God for foreordaining all things in Christ. In him we have redemption. Now give to the saints the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him and seat them in heavenly places. So it's, it's thanks for what God has done, what he is doing, and then praying for him to fill it up and to make it full. And so I'm not going to have very many comments on David's prayer, but I do want to read it. So let's hear David's response from verse 18. King David went in and sat before Yahweh, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? From now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel, your very own people forever, and you, Yahweh, have become their God. Now, O Yahweh God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever saying, Yahweh of hosts is the God over Israel and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. God says to David, I'm going to build you a house. You're not building me one yet. I'm not done with you. I'm not building you, done building you a house. And, God, and David responds with humility and he responds with praise. And what, what's David going to say at this point? Is he say, nah, 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 I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. You know, like when two Christians get to a door, you know, like, no, you go first. No, you go first. I mean, no, David says, no, actually, I'm, I'm going to let you go first. I'm going to let you build me a house first. He praises God for who he is, for what he's done. And then he prays that God would finish his work and establish his kingdom. That's, that's not inconsistent. And it's not unnecessary to pray for God to do what he has promised. And that's exactly what David does here. He prays, God, you've promised this. Now do it. That's not unnecessary for us to do that. In fact, that's what God expects us to do. God has ordained things in such a way that ordinarily the faithful prayers of his people are what brings into reality his promises. It brings them to pass. When, when God says he's going to do something, it's a call for a response from his people. Jeremiah 18 says this, God, God says this through his prophet, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, 
the instant I speak, to pluck it up, to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build it and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good, which I said I would benefit it. So God says to the nation, he says, you know, if I, if I say you, that I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to judge you, if you repent, guess what? It's off. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you. What, what, did, what did Jonah do to Nineveh? He walked through the city saying 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But Nineveh repented and God relented. And so God says through Jeremiah, if I say I'm going to do something and you repent, I'm going to back off. I'm not going to judge you. My, my statement is a call to action. And so he says the same thing. If I say to a nation, I'm going to build it and I'm going to plan it. If you do evil in my sight, I'm going to relent with the good that I said that I was going to do. When God says a thing or does a thing, he, respect, he expects a response from his people. So if God had said to David, I'm going to establish you in your house, and then David just presumed that, man, boy, we got it set now. Everything's just fine. Uh, I, I'm going to drag out some idols, and we're going to try to this, you know, let's, let's do this Baal worship thing for a while. Can, let's, let's see what Asher, Ashtoreth's all about. Let's try this. If he hadn't repented when he sinned, God would have brought everything crashing down like he did with Saul. It's the very same thing he did with Saul. Just as for us, God has made promises to us. He's made all kinds of promises to us. It's appropriate for us to pray those promises and ask for him to fulfill those promises in us and for us, just as he's made promises to us regarding our children. But those promises are to be taken a hold of by faith. We don't presume. We don't think, oh, well, we got the promise. We got the sacraments. We got the worship. We got this all lined out. It's all figured out. I'm going on break. I'm taking off. This is fine. It's all set. No, no. You have to take hold of it by faith. God has promised to build up his church, but he hasn't promised to build up our congregation. He hasn't promised to complete his work in our day. So we don't presume. We don't just think it's all set. It's all done. We take hold of his promises by faith. We trust and by covenant faithfulness. We, we, never, we never take God lightly. That's what it means to carry his name in vain, to take him lightly. So we grab hold and we trust him and we obey him as, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for... He who promised is faithful. You see, see, that's why we can take hold of his promises because he's not going to change. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going uh, to waffle on us. Uh, but he expects us to respond in faith to him. That isn't some kind of theology of merit. That's not some kind of works righteousness. Why? It's because God always initiates with dead men, just as he initiates with David here. He says, I'm going to do this for you before you do anything else for me. Well, you're going to build me a house? Wait, hold up. I'm going to build you a house. Uh, Jesus says, you know, you, you don't wash my feet. I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to wash your feet first. I'm going to save you before the foundation of the world. I'm going to call you. God initiates. God always initiates. And he gives us the grace to live, to trust, to obey. And he beats us to the punch every time we respond in love. That's what he's doing with King David here. And in this, we see this. He's, boy, he's always doing this, isn't he? He always says, I'm going to establish you before you do this for me. And that's our God. And that's how he gives us his himself uh, in this way. Let's pray. 
Father, we praise you for Jesus, and we praise you for the fulfillment of your promise to David through Jesus. We ask you to continue to establish your people, fix us, and build us up as your temple that you have uh, uh, dwelt among and you have ordained to live among us as, as, as your house. And so, Father, continue to fill this up and continue to, to complete it and continue to give us good success, continue to defeat your enemies, and continue to rest with us. We pray that uh, you would uh, grow us up in all these graces. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.